Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I am so glad that you're here. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about why we can crave physical touch, yet struggle to ask for it, and even feel awkward when it's happening. I will also talk about asking for things in therapy so that we can get our needs met, and how we can forgive ourselves for past suicide attempts. I will then dig into therapy ending, and why we can fear it, how people can actually love their life. Amazing, right? And finally, how to communicate about our mental illness. I hope my answers are helpful. Without further ado, let's dive right in. Question number one says, hey, Katie, I was wondering what your thoughts or tips are for people who crave physical touch, but don't get it or find it difficult or awkward to try and ask for it. I find that when I'm upset, I want to be hugged or comforted by someone. And I don't know how to deal with that because It doesn't feel fair to ask someone, but I don't know how or what to do about it. I'd love to hear your thoughts about this and if you have any advice. Thank you so much for everything you do. Now, we have two add-ons to this, but first, let's just talk about this topic. Now, craving physical touch is a completely normal and reasonable need. Humans crave touch. We're wired, if you don't know, like the way that our nervous system is wired is to be soothed through eye contact, sucking and swallowing. If you don't know that process, triggers our vagus nerve and actually calms us down. And that's part of the reason why babies are soothed by being fed. Obviously, it's an innate need for us to survive. But the magic of our being is that that motion and that sucking and swallowing not only allows us to be fed, but it also allows our nervous system to calm down. Ah, We feel relaxed. Um, Also, that's why if you think of the way that we treat babies, that's kind of how I always have to go back to things. Babies crave that skin on skin contact. Have you ever seen um, or heard of anybody who had a child and they'll show pictures of the dad or the mom with the baby laying directly on their skin, skin on skin contact? And they talk about the importance of that for the development of the child and for them to be able to soothe when they're just fresh out of the womb. There's a ton of research. It's really fascinating. You can read about it. And so I talk about those things because I want you to know that the craving or the needing of physical touch isn't you being weird. There's nothing wrong with you. We're actually wired to crave it and to need it. And it is incredibly vital to our development and our existence as humans. Okay. So craving it is very normal, but I would hypothesize that One of two things has happened. Either one, when we were growing up, no one gave us physical touch at all. We were neglected. 
Therefore, physical touch feels weird or awkward or asking for it maybe feels wrong because we don't really, it's not something that was shown to us or practiced and we'd have no experience with it, even though we know that we need it again, because we're wired to crave it because we're wired to need it because it's soothing to our system and it's important for our development. But we're just new to it because we didn't get it like we should have. Okay. So there's that. Then the second thing that I think possibly could have happened to some of us, but maybe not all is abuse. So that when physical touch was initiated by a caregiver, it was to do harm, not to love and care for you. And so then physical touch can feel kind of scary. It can feel a little overwhelming. We aren't sure how to do it. We don't, it feels very dangerous. It kind of sends us into fight flight. We can freak out. It can feel overwhelming. And so depending on your response to physical touch, just that can kind of tell us where it maybe is coming from. Now, my overall advice for this is kind of two-pronged. Number one, once we figure out if it's because we were neglected or, you know, abused through physical touch, and neglect is abuse, by the way, but I'm just breaking these into two because it's like not having any experience with it at all, or when we were touched, it was harmful. Once we figure out kind of the avenue with which it came through, then we can work to heal that. And yes, that's a simple phrase for a very complicated process, meaning we might have to process some trauma through EMDR or uh, somatic work, meaning through your body, or maybe talk therapy, or maybe a combination of the things, right? We have to give ourselves an opportunity to process all the pain that we've been through or the neglect that we sustained. And then we'll be able to slowly cultivate a new relationship with touch. Now, this can also be done with a loving partner or a friend, and we can let them know that we need this, even though we don't always know how to ask for it. I know that takes a little vulnerability and opening up, but that could be something we work on in therapy to be able to communicate it ahead of time and let them know that when we are upset to immediately offer the touch, even if we're weird about it. That's okay. We have to let them know ahead of time, right? People can't know how to help us if we don't tell them. And I know from our audience and being online for what, I don't know, 12 years or more, is that people want to help us and they just don't know how. And so we have to try to find a way to tell them. And that's something you could practice in therapy, practice writing it out, practice saying it, and we can make sure we get it that way. So the processing of the past is going to be key because we have to figure out where it's coming from. And then we have to find a way and practice like how to ask for that. Okay. So that's one piece. The second piece is going to be a tool in dialectical behavior therapy, otherwise known as DBT that's called opposite action. And that essentially means that when we want to like shut down and cut people off and not ask for what we need and feel like, oh, this is so weird. I can't, we do it anyways. And I know it's easier said than done, but this is when we kind of have to just like count like three, two, one, do it. We can't think about rip the bandaid off. Now it is difficult, but if we just count down and do it quickly, the amount of discomfort leading up to it goes away. Cause we, we, give ourselves almost no choice, which yes, can feel overwhelming, but it's also allows us to get what we need when we, it like innately feel or discourage or struggle to. And so it's like doing it fast. Opposite actions. Like, you know what I want to do? I want to go in my room. I want to shut the door. I want to isolate. I want to shut down. You know what I'm going to do instead? I'm going to call that friend or I'm going to text that person, or I'm going to walk out in the living room and ask my partner or my uh, loved one for a hug. I know it's easier said than done, but I'm telling you, you can do it. 
you just have to like three, two, one, do it. Just initiate it. Start going. Even if it feels silly, even if it feels awkward, even if it feels terrible, we're going to push through because what we have to prove to your system is that asking for the touch and getting the touch isn't a bad thing. Nothing terrible is going to happen. We will survive it. And slowly but surely as we do that, it will get easier and easier and easier. And then my, I guess my third kind of tip, and um, if you live alone, this is what I've um, asked and told some of my patients to do is to invest in a weighted blanket and possibly a weighted vest. Now, I know these sound kind of crazy or weird. You can even order some online that you can fill yourself with like sand or uh, other things like weighted bits so that you don't have to pay for it all to be shipped to you. It can be kind of expensive, but you can buy a weighted blanket or a weighted vest and that can help soothe your system when you're really needing that like compression and that feeling that we get from being hugged. Does it replace it? No. But is it a little bit effective? Yes. And so you can try those things out and see what works most for you. But the, there's a big piece here in this question that really rang true or stood out to me, I guess I should say, where they said it doesn't feel fair to ask someone. I always want to flip that on their, on its head, almost like reverse it. So if you think it, it's not fair for you to ask someone for a hug, do you think it's fair for someone to ask you for a hug? Would you judge them if they did? Think about it. Because most of us usually when we feel this way, think that we don't deserve it. And then again, that's into that therapeutic work of like, where did that belief or that value come from? Why do we think that we're of lesser value than others? Why do we think that we don't have a right to ask for that help? Let's dig into it. Find out what we can find and move through it as we process it in therapy. But what you're needing is completely normal, completely okay. Everybody needs it. Let's practice asking for it and let's practice finding ways to soothe ourselves, okay? Now, there were add-ons that says, I have the opposite feeling and physical touch makes me feel awkward, tense, and sometimes physically sick. How do you work past this when it feels like such a societal norm to crave and need physical attention or physical touch, sorry? Do I need it even if it makes me feel this way? P.S. I don't have any history of abuse. Now, again, doesn't necessarily have to be thought of as abuse, but I have a feeling your family is not very physical, not very touchy. And so we don't have any experience with it. So it's very odd. Now, I would push back on that and tell you that, yes, it is. It's not just a societal norm. It's actually a neurological norm. It's actually a, a human need to have touch and to to need that touch. I would hypothesize that there's something in your family and your upbringing where that was never offered. And so the the sheer thought of it is too overwhelming. It could also be part of maybe like more of an avoidant attachment. Again, I know that we, you said there's no history of abuse. I'm not saying that it was maybe overt abuse. I'm just saying that there was no expression of, of this touch and physical connection. So it feels weird and odd and not normal. And that could also lead to the fact that we kind of probably prefer to be alone and we have this like toxic independence, which is really just indicative of the fact that when we were growing up, our parents probably were pretty emotionally neglectful, if not physically neglectful too. It sounds like maybe a little bit of both. And yes, that is abuse, but we don't often think of it in that way. And I know abuse can feel like a heavy word to some of us. And we're like, I don't have any of that. But being neglected as a child, like if your parents didn't show up for you in the way that you needed, while it's not overt and it doesn't, we don't have like marks, it leaves emotional scars. And so I would, my hypothesis is that that happened and we've kind of just minimized and that's the norm. And so we think it's weird that other people think differently. And so I do believe that you need it 
people have different levels of need of, of physical touch, but we all need some. And so I would, if you're not in therapy, I would get into therapy and start figuring out where this came from and, and you know, what physical touch looks like in your family of origin and how people talk about it and how people talk about you in relation to it. Cause I think there's probably something there. Now there was another add on that says, if you crave closeness and it's your love language, but due to childhood sexual abuse, any touch or closeness causes your body and nervous system to be triggered by becoming tense. Facial expressions are sour and you automatically say you're fine and laugh and you feel shame and think people view you as disgusting. Hmm. I unconsciously sabotage any relationship because of this reaction. I'm saying, come here. And my body is screaming, get away from me. It's a painful existence. Any thoughts would be greatly appreciated. It's in that process of that childhood sexual abuse. I know it sucks and it's uncomfortable. You can do the opposite action, but that belief that you're disgusting, that comes from somewhere and I think is probably childhood sexual abuse related. I encourage you to challenge it in therapy, check some facts, but it's going to be through that trauma processing that we can untangle this and be able to accept and enjoy maybe physical touch. Now, I do think there is something in here for you because you find yourself being super triggered is figuring out some ways to kind of calm our system down. That could be like I've talked about in the past, like full body shakes. That could be just going for a walk, petting an animal, dunking our face in cold water, putting a cold rag on our neck um, to change our temperature. There can be a lot of different ways that we can kind of regulate our nervous system so we don't feel so queued up and overwhelmed because being triggered really just means that something from um, our past has made a, our nervous system feel overwhelmed and we're kind of into fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. And so in order to get that out, we have to shake it out. We have to move our body. We have to do something, especially if we go into freeze. Moving our body will prevent that kind of icky, internal, overwhelming experience that can come along with it. And so that's really my advice to you is to find some ways to soothe your system and continue working through the childhood sexual abuse. And for the people in your life who are close to you, Let's practice a way to explain what's going on. Say, it's going to look like I don't want you to touch me or hug me, but I really do. Um, and I'm trying to work through this, but it's just stuff from my past. We don't have to share everything. We can just say it's stuff from my past. And like, I just have never talked about it. So it's making me really uncomfortable. You know, hug me anyway. Um, and again, those weighted vests, you can wear them around the house. Um, weighted blankets, that can help a little bit too. But I know, I just want to throw it out there as a caution Sometimes when we have abuse in our past, a weighted blanket can feel icky and we can hate it. And a good way to test before you purchase something like that is to put a bunch of blankets on your bed and get in and see if it feels okay for you. Now, obviously a weighted blanket will be a little bit more intense, but it can be triggering for some of us, especially if any of our abuse was the feeling of being pinned down in any way. So just as a caution, I'd find the vests are different because we're upright and we wear them. Um, but just check those things out first. Okay. Okay. And hang in there, you guys. It, it does get better. We can move through this. It's okay to need touch. We all come from different backgrounds. So figuring it out, communicating with others so that they can show up for us in the way that we need. It's going to be incredibly life-changing. Okay. Question number two says, hey, Katie, is it okay to ask your therapist for more directed sessions? When I go into my appointment, she asks what I want to work on. And I don't really know what I want to do or where I want to go. I would like it if she could take more of a lead in our sessions because I don't know what to say when she asks me. Thanks for everything. It is 100% okay to ask for more directive sessions. 
every therapist is different. Um, re regardless of the style of therapy, some therapists believe in more patient-led therapy. Others believe in more therapy, therapist-led therapy. And it seems like your therapist wants to see what you want to work on, but you're needing some more guidance. So let them know. I would... I think the best way to go about this personally, this is my professional opinion, is to put together a treatment plan with them. Tell them, you know, I listened to this weird therapist on the internet. She talks about treatment plans. Could we put one of those together? Maybe you're already working on one, but I want to make sure that I'm letting you know what my goals are. So if you feel okay, come to that session with some goals. And these are, aren't the end all be all. This is a living, breathing document that we can change at any time. But have some things you want to improve. Like, you know what? One of my goals in therapy is to be less reactive or to improve one of my relationships or to to stop feeling so shitty about myself all the time. These don't have to be any more clear. They can even be less than that. Like, I don't know. I just feel blah. I don't want to feel that way anymore. Okay? Those can be our goals. And then a treatment plan allows us to work backwards. Like, we go backwards and then we can almost chart the course towards those goals, Right? So we have the, the long-term goals, we have short-term goals, and we work towards them. And that can allow for your therapist to ensure that they're directing you and directing the therapy towards those things. And then they can maybe assist more upfront in therapy. And instead of asking you what you want to work on, they already know. So that could be a way to go about it. But I really encourage you just for you to be more direct in therapy and say that you want this because it's completely fine. It's your time. It's your therapy and it's your process. And you have every right to ask for every anything you need in therapy. You need a little more guidance. You need more direction. You feel like you're lost and you're like, I'm here because I need you to help show me the way. That's completely fine. Your therapist might just be a, a little bit different in their style, but we shift according to our patients. It doesn't mean that we can't do that. So just let them know that you don't know what to say when you ask. And I'd really prefer it if you could kind of guide therapy a little bit. And maybe a way we could do that is first talk about some of the goals I have. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. You can do it. I have faith in you. And yes, it's completely okay. I've asked my therapist for all sorts of things, by the way. I told my one therapist, I was like, I need more tough love. I feel like I'm getting away with stuff. Or I need you to be a little bit softer about this topic. I feel uncomfortable. Or you know, could we maybe try some of these styles of therapy? I've been really wanting to do that. I've asked for all sorts of things. It's okay. It's your time. It's your treatment. You deserve to have a voice in it and to ask for what you need and want. And if you have trouble speaking up, write it down, practice saying it out loud. See if you can email them or text them in between sessions saying, I know you won't reply, but I just have a couple things I want to mention. And you can say it that way. Whatever we can do to get that out so that we can start benefiting from therapy in a way that, in a way that feels good for us. Okay? Moving on to question number three. It says, hey, Katie, I was wondering what advice you would give for how to forgive yourself for a suicide attempt. I'm struggling years later when anyone offers compassion or tries to comfort me. I get annoyed when people say things like, I'm sorry that happened to you. As my suicide attempt wasn't something that happened to me, it was a conscious decision on my part, and I take full responsibility for that choice that I made. I've been thinking about returning to therapy to revisit this as I find I'm keeping people at arm's length in almost all areas of my life. Thanks for all you do. Your channel is great. A great resource for so many people. Of course, of course. Um, lots to unpack here. One of the big pieces, and I know this isn't part of this question, but I just have to say it. One of the big pieces about any suicide attempt is the trauma associated with it and the shame and embarrassment that comes along as well. And the reason I talk about it that way is you have to recognize that trauma happens when we we are concerned for our safety 
or life or the safety or life of someone else that we know and love, right? So if we are attempting to take our own life, we're threatening ourselves and we can be traumatized by it. It also can be just traumatizing to be in that low of a spot and to feel that hopeless and helpless, so much so that we feel like the only way out is to end it. Give yourself a minute to absorb the fact that that was potentially traumatizing for you and overwhelming. And probably part of it is why that's maybe why it comes with some of the shame and embarrassment and you wanting to keep people away. I also am very curious when anybody, any of my patients who've had past suicide attempts tell me that they like, you know, just don't want people to get too close. I'm always curious if it's, it could be one or both of these, but it's either I don't want people to see me for who I really am because then they might not like me. Or I don't want to let people get too close because then if I decide to take my own life at another time, I don't want to hurt anybody. Or a combination of the two. I'm just food for thought for you. Think about it. Let's talk about it. It's okay to keep talking about this. It's okay to process it. And yes, I would encourage you to get into therapy to talk this through because keeping people at arm's length only isolates you more and I think makes you even more vulnerable to a potential dip in depression or another, you know, more thoughts of suicide. We know through research that connection with other people, feeling seen and heard is one of the best ways to pull us out of those deep, dark pits. And so if we're not allowing that to happen, it's almost like we're not allowing ourselves to feel better. And I might just encourage you to to journal if it's not too triggering. And I just am going to trust you that you will know what's too much for you. But I'm interested about the getting annoyed with people saying things like that to you. What annoyed is an interesting word to me. Now I'm being a total therapist here and like nitpicking, but it's, it, you didn't say you feel shame. You didn't say you feel embarrassed. It's annoyed. We're agitated. And I'm curious about that, like agitation and what role you think that plays in this? Because is it because you're frustrated with their lack of understanding? Is it because you're, you're frustrated with the way that, that it didn't happen, that we weren't successful in our attempt? Can we dig into that? I'm curious because when people say, I'm sorry, it happened to you, you feel like, no, that wasn't what happened. I made a conscious decision. Is is that the agitation? Because like they don't understand. But then I have to ask you a follow-up question where it's like, have you given anybody an opportunity to understand me? Have we communicated with anybody about this? Have we been honest? Are we, if we haven't, why not? What are we afraid will happen? Those are just some of the things that I would want to like explore. But therapy will be the place for you to revisit this, talk about it, process it, figure out what's tied up in it for you. Because I've had patients with all sorts of mixed thoughts. Some feeling like they're a failure because they didn't, you know, it wasn't successful. Others feeling like they're really glad that it wasn't successful, but then there's a lot of shame and embarrassment. Others struggling to find a way, a reason to not do it again. Like it just depends. And so let's give you a space and an opportunity to talk it through, process what happens so that we can stop being spines out as our puffer fish self. We can pull our spines in and allow people to be close because we really need that in order to heal. Now there was a comment on top of this as I attempted suicide a few times and I don't think my mom sees it as a big deal. Maybe she pretends it didn't happen. How can I be okay with what I did and help my mom see that it was a big deal? This is interesting. And I have a feeling your mom has probably potentially always minimized you. Maybe there's some neglect there. It sounds very emotionally neglectful. Um, 
But I do find that when we've attempted suicide a few times, I don't know if BPD is part of your profile of diagnoses or not. Um, no, no judgments. Just I know from because I, you guys, if you guys don't know, um, for many, 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 many years in my practice, I primarily saw patients with eating disorders and uh, borderline personality disorder. Those were kind of my specialties, um, which came along with like self injury and stuff like that. And I found parents could be like kind of burnt out on the suicide attempts because those are my patients patients who had BPD tend to have a history, a long history of attempts. And so the family would kind of run out and it sounds terrible to say it this way, but it's almost like they couldn't take it seriously because they, it was never like the first couple of times so terrifying and traumatizing. They almost became, became numb to it because they didn't know how to cope with it. And so I'm interested in this question because you said, I want her to see it as a big deal. It's essentially what you're saying. And I'm curious why that is. And could we maybe think about that? Why is it that it's important for her to see it? Because we can't change other people, right? We can't make her see it as a big deal. But it's important to you for some reason. That's why I suspect some neglect um, or emotional neglect of some sort, right? Because I want, and I wonder if we're doing these attempts to get her attention, Remember, attention's not a bad thing. We all need it. But I have a lot of questions about that. And there's no way for you to help her see it as a big deal. Um, making more attempts isn't going to create that. I want to know more about how can you receive whatever it is you're wanting to get from your mom? How can you offer that to yourself? I think there's a lot of inner child work here. I have a feeling your mom maybe wasn't there in the way that we needed or didn't know how to cope with maybe our uh, the emotional volatility we experienced and so there could be some therapy you could do together maybe if if your mom's open to it or there's a lot of therapy you could do on your own because i really want to dig into what it would look like if she did think it was a big deal what would it mean if what does it mean to you that she doesn't is that like further pain and abusive feeling do you feel like she's like just ignoring you completely do you feel unimportant what comes out of that? Because I feel like there's a lot to unpack there. And that's what I would talk about in therapy because I think that that is actually at the root of probably even the reasons you attempted in the first place. Okay. I know that's not like a direct answer, but that's where I feel like this is going. Okay. Let's move on to question number four. Question number four says, hey, Katie, is it normal to fear the end of therapy? Yes, very normal. I have only a certain number of sessions and I still have a lot, but nevertheless, I always fear, I already fear the end. Of course, I hope it will be better by then, but still the thought of it never, I've never seen my therapist again is very hard. Also, if a lesson is canceled, I'm always very upset. If it's, if it's known in advance, for example, because of vacation, it still works out somehow. But if it's spontaneous because of illness, I always feel so desperate. Of course, I've already mentioned this in therapy, but I'm afraid to mention it too often because otherwise I'm afraid of not respecting the limits of my therapist and that he will then refer me out. Is this all normal? To be so dependent on therapy, what can I do about it? Thanks for everything you do. It's very normal. The piece here that I think would be my encouragement for your your next like chunk of work with your therapist and even out of therapy is about attachment. Now, I have an attachment workshop on my website. You can go to katiemorton.com and you can purchase it. I also have free videos on YouTube about attachment styles. And I encourage you because I'm Wondering if we're more of an anxious attached person, you can Google that, you can read about it. Because the feeling of desperation when sessions are canceled last minute and the feeling that you need therapy and the fear of it at some point going away sounds very attachment-based to me. Is there anything wrong with you? No. Is this normal? Yes. Almost every person has some attachment shit. 
I find personally that I'm more of an anxiously attached. And then I have a little piece of avoid and attachment every so often, depending on the person in the relationship. Because when I was growing up, I definitely was at like toxic independence. Like I can do it myself. I don't need anybody. Because depending on other people didn't feel very safe for me. Um, And I'm talking about that in my next book. So stay tuned. But I think that might be where this is coming from for you. And they think that's what I would mention in therapy. I would say, you know what? I've been thinking about, you know, I've mentioned before that like I fear the end of therapy and and it's I feel like it's really uncomfortable. And if things are canceled, it's really hard for me. And I'm wondering if that has to do with some attachment stuff. And you can say I was reading about it or you can say I was listening to a weird therapist on the Internet. And she mentioned like anxious or avoidant attachment. And I think what you're my hypothesis is this is more anxiously attached stuff. But that could be a good direction for you to go with it because nothing's wrong with you. And this will give your therapist like an avenue with which to continue to process and work through this with you versus just feeling like you're mentioning the same thing over and over and you don't want to like overwhelm them at all. You're not going to, by the way. But this is like more directive. This is an actual avenue that almost every therapist can operate within and they can look up stuff if they don't know how and help you process through this. Um, But like I said, I have that attachment workshop on my website and tons of videos about it. I would encourage you to dig in and hopefully that kind of answers any additional questions that have come up for you. Now, there's another comment says about being dependent on therapy. I too am very upset and desperate when therapy is canceled, but also if a session didn't go as I hoped. For example, sometimes I'm dissociated all session and we work and we only work on getting me out of the dissociation instead of working on the deeper stuff. And after therapy, I feel like the world falls apart. I've heard sometimes that I put too much hope into therapy. Is that true? Therapy is the only thing I see that can help me change my life and get better. Mm. I don't think it's bad to put hope in therapy. Therapy is there to help us feel better. It'd be like saying you can't put hope in your doctor when you go in for because you're sick. You're like, why am I even going, right? I don't think there's anything wrong with putting a lot of hope into therapy. The encouragement that I have is for you to do the work outside of therapy. That's kind of the the difficulty, especially with my BPD patients. I'm not saying either of you are struggling with that. Just giving this as an example. Some of my BPD patients would find themselves relying on therapy so deeply that they almost didn't want to get better, or they would believe that I had to be there for any of their work to be done. And it took a lot of our own conversations in therapy for me to get them to do the homework outside of. And sometimes I'd even have to say, because they weren't making any progress, I'm like, we might have to refer you out for a higher level of care, and then you can come back later. And that would trigger, obviously, a very intense response. But sometimes it would kick them into gear, and then they'd start doing some homework or start attempting to try things out outside of therapy. It's not that I was threatening them, but it's just the truth, right? If what I can offer you is not enough and you're not getting better, I don't want to waste your time. I don't want to waste your money. I want to make sure you're moving towards your goals, right? And so I guess my encouragement for both of the people who are asking these questions is to make sure that you're doing that work outside of therapy. Yes, therapy is, you can rely on it. You can put a lot of hope in it. You can expect it to help you feel better. But we are the ones, we as the patients are the ones that are gonna actually have to change and do that work. So be patient with yourself. Give yourself a little compassion. You're trying to learn how to do things differently and it's uncomfortable and it's going to take time. And we now, thank God, have a space we can go to where we can talk about what's really going on or feel at least contained, even if we're dissociating. We know that they'll pull us out and we will get through it. That's a beautiful thing. Let's utilize that 
but not just that. Let's utilize the other six days of the week, or if it's every other week, then the other 13 days of the weeks that we can work on ourselves and improving the things that we're supposed to be doing in therapy. Does that make sense? Because therapy is supposed to be just like a check-in as we take that information and go out into our regular life and try to act in a different way. Meaning that like, if my goal is to better manage my anxiety, then if my therapist gives me some tips and tools or things to think about, that means that on my days where I'm not seeing my therapist, I'm either journaling or I'm trying those tools. And then I come back the following week and I say, hey, this worked, this didn't. Here's what I've thought or learned about myself, et cetera, et cetera. And believe me when I tell you that that will not only help therapy move along more quickly where you'll feel like you're making more progress, amazing, but it will also allow for that dependent feeling in therapy to kind of not not minimize, not go away, but diminish it enough that it doesn't feel so overwhelming because we're slowly proving to ourselves week after week that we can, in fact, do some of it on our own. And that's a really empowering space to be in. And that's where I want us all to get to. So give that a try. Okay, let's move on to question number five. And this question says, Katie, how can people love life? I'm not jealous or angry. It's just a concept that I don't understand. For me, life was and is always being scared, bullied, traumatized, etc. I've dealt with severe mental health problems since I was a kid. And now on top, I was diagnosed with a brain tumor a few weeks ago. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. That's just health wise. But the world we live in is awful. Humans are cruel and it's getting worse and worse. It's easy to focus only on the bad. There's a lot of bad. I wish I could tell you like life was rainbows and fucking puppy dogs, but it's not. And it's crazy right now. And the amount of hate on the internet and the amount of hate in the world, it can feel very overwhelming. So I don't disagree with you that the world is can be cruel and it keeps getting worse and worse. It can feel like that. But here's my challenge to all of you. If you're feeling like you can't love life, that everything is shitty and it's only going to get worse. I encourage you every day to try to find one nice thing. Like for instance, today, if you're listening to this podcast and this was your question, I answered it. Ding. Yay. Whoop, whoop. That's a good thing. It's okay to acknowledge the good. Acknowledging the good does not mean shutting out or being, uh, I don't know, it doesn't mean that you're ignoring that the bad exists. We're not rose-colored glasses, completely ignorant or be acting in some kind of childlike way. It's for self-preservation. It's for us to enjoy our days and to, as you said, love life. Now, obviously, you've had a really marked past through, you know, being bullied, scared, traumatized, etc. And now we're diagnosed with a brain tumor. Obviously, there's bad things. No one's life is filled with only good things. I'm here to tell you. You always think other people have it better. We do not. But we can choose. Every day we wake up and we get to choose what we want to focus on. And I, that's why I encourage you every day, I want you to journal and not even long journal. I just want you to write down one positive thing that happened that day or one happy thing that you saw. It could be on the internet. It could be in real life. It could be as simple as I saw this man open a door for this other person and it was really nice. Or somebody said good morning to me and it made me feel good. Or what a beautiful day it was outside. Or my dog wiggle waggles, she gets so happy. And that just totally boosts my dopamine right? Find one thing because the world's always going to be filled with bad, but I'm, I'm, 
I'm being honest with you when I say that it's also equally filled with good. We just have to decide what we want to focus on. It's almost like when Sean sets up this camera, he like focuses in on my face to make sure that I'm in focus. You're focusing in on the bad and I encourage you to move that out and focus in on the good. Again, it doesn't mean we're being ignorant or stupid or any way or naive. It honestly just means that we are trying to look for the silver lining because life can, well, there'll always be bad, but they'll also always be good. And instead of feeling shitty, we might as well focus on the good so we feel a little bit better. We can acknowledge the bad, right? We have like two wars going on right now in our world and that's scary and terrible. And people are fighting online about chaos they don't understand and it's crazy. Things are overwhelming. Well, not to mention just like life, right? So <sighs> focus in on the good and feel free to leave comments below this and let me know, everybody, let me know one good thing you saw today. Let's get those good positive juices going. Again, this isn't toxic positivity. It doesn't mean that you can't have a bad day. It just means that we get to decide what we focus on. And I choose to focus on the good. I believe in the good in people. I've, I see it every day. But I have to remind myself sometimes, so remind yourself. Final question, question number six says, hey, Katie, I'm new to your channel. Well, welcome. But I've recently been having an issue with communicating my mental illness to my partner. She's asked me to be more open about my depression and anxiety, which I've been doing for the most part, but I'm currently transitioning medication. And one day when I was feeling down, I didn't communicate this. and My partner got upset. She was also annoyed about me getting agitated easily, but that's a topic for another time. How can I best communicate my mental illness with my partner, especially while transitioning on medication? I think when it comes to mental illness, I find communication has to happen in stages and it has to be consistent. It, not, not really consistent. That's not the right word. It has to be repetitive. And I mean that because it takes people who don't have a mental illness or don't ha- share our struggles, right? Which good for them. But when they don't understand and they don't have experience, it can take them a little while to figure out what we're talking about. It can be hard for them to to grasp it, to understand. And so know that each time you communicate with your partner is just one of many that you're going to have. And the one that I think you haven't had that I would encourage you to prepare for and to try to make time for is to let them know what to do when you're really down or maybe a signal you can send when you're really down. Because if they are going to get upset that you didn't communicate this, but you didn't know it was happening until it was already upon you and your transition with medication, like these should have been pre-communicated. Like when I'm going through a tough time, I can get agitated. It's not because I'm mad at you. I just don't feel like myself or I'm transitioning medication right now. I don't know what that's going to do. Know that it has nothing to do with you. I'm doing my best, but I might just not be as even keeled, right? We don't have to have all the answers. We don't have to be able to like educate them on everything. They can do their own research if they want. But I find it's like in the preemptive work. So we preemptively have to tell them and talk to them about things. Now, here's another piece and another layer is in, obviously you're transitioning medication. So that's very difficult. And I think part of that's just letting them know that that what that might be. And you might want to bring them into an appointment with your psychiatrist or your therapist to talk about that. So they can ask questions that maybe you don't know the answers to fully, or maybe it could cause an argument. But if someone else is involved, it could be easier. That's okay too. But the other piece, I think the work for you is in the recognition of symptoms earlier on 
to give you space for that communication. Because what I find the most common problem in relationships is that we don't communicate until it's already on to like happening, like actively upsetting us. And so because we haven't preemptively talked about it, when it's actively happening, we're not in wise mind, meaning we're not in a place where we can speak about it rationally, thoughtfully, lovingly. We're reactive. We feel bad. So then, like you said, you're agitated and you're like, stop asking me, like essentially get the fuck out of my face. I'm not feeling good, right? It has nothing to do with them, everything to do with you. But because we couldn't notice it earlier on, we gave ourselves no space for communication. And so my my real advice, just to break it down, is two-pronged. Okay, when we want to talk to our partner about our mental illness, number one, do it ahead of time. Start writing it out. Start jotting down some bullet points of what you wish they would know and talk to them when you're feeling good, okay? Then the second is to start tracking your own symptoms. Start noticing your own expression of your issue so that we can do things before we're in it and in our emotion mind and unable to have real conversations and real communication, okay? Because that will set us up for success. And the other piece that we don't have control over, and I just want to remind you, you don't have control over it. We don't have control over how our partner reacts or how they want to respond to us. All we can do is set it up for success and communicate as clearly as we're able about what we're experiencing and hope that they'll meet us there and that they'll get there eventually. Okay? Because we have to sometimes give people a little bit of time to kind of process and digest what we've told them. Because again, they don't have the experience, right? They don't know. So we're asking them to pull from something they, they're like, oh, I don't understand. So I have to give them time to kind of come around to it, but I have faith that they will. Okay. Thank you all so much for listening and watching. Thank you for sending in your questions. Have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your week. Do your homework and I'll see you next time. Bye.